Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. Today I am speaking with Budabam. Budabam is a DJ, electronic music producer, poet, and as you hear in our conversation, a meditator. In fact, he was a student of Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche and also Kanjo Rinpoche and some other meditation teachers. And I have listened to his music, in fact, danced to his music many times over the last several years. He lives in Boulder, Colorado here, and he always puts on a wonderful show. And then I had a friend of mine tell me that he was actually a student of Trungpa Rinpoche, and so I knew a little bit about his background, but he has a really fascinating life story. And it was just wonderful to get to know him more and get to hear more about his life. One of the things he said that I loved is that people naturally want to ascend or go to higher states of consciousness, higher states of being. And so there's this natural impulse in us that wants to feel good, that wants to be alive, and that wants to have bigger perspectives and see things more clearly. And he sees music and dance and movement as avenues towards that end or as expression of those states of being. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, It was a lot of fun to get to talk to him about that. Um, He shared with me one of his recent sets. It's playing here in the background. Links will be on the episode webpage and website, as always. The story of how Budabam came to be called Budabam was amazing and uh, well worth listening to that part. And in editing this episode, I, I realized that he mentions this old master from Tibet named Longchenpa. And I didn't really react, we didn't really talk about that much in our conversation. Um, but Longchenpa has been a huge influence on me as well. And I think part of the reason why I didn't talk more about it is just the fact that Longchenpa is so revered in the Dzogchen meditation traditions that it almost feels blasphemous to say his name or something. But uh, I found one quote from him that I love that I've seen popping up on the internet somehow. <laughs> and that quote is, Since everything is but an apparition, having nothing to do with good or bad, acceptance, nor rejection, one may as well burst out in laughter. And without further ado, I bring you Buddha Bomb. Here today with Budabam, also known as James, right? Uh, sometimes more more known as Budabam, actually. Nice, it's a great name. Yeah. Uh, I've seen you play a number of times electronic dance music. Is that how you would describe it? Uh, roughly, I mean, I would describe my music lately as a multi-electronic music genre mm. with various cultural flavors 
So I like to play music that has you know, Middle Eastern, Celtic, African, and indigenous sounds chanting. Oh, beautiful. And, and not and there's plenty of beats, but not just the beat. Not just the beat, yeah. I think last time I heard you, you mixed, there was some like Celtic, um, real Celtic sounding stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, one of the flavors that I, I like. <laughs> and I, I like to mix it up. I mean, my my background with DJing started on KGNU Radio. Oh, cool. That's a local radio station here in Boulder, Colorado. A public radio station. And I'm in my 21st year on KGNU. And on the radio, in music programs, I do different ones, but some of them are eclectic, where I play different styles. And so you can't just play you know, house music or uh, techno. You have to change the flavors a lot. And then I've tended to do that in my live sets as well. Beautiful. Yeah, there's so much music in the world today that's accessible to us. You know, so much recorded music, so much being put out there, and it's it's overwhelming actually. Because there's new yeah. music coming out all the time, and it's almost like I think if you had one of those graphs that showed the amount of music being released, it would be an exponential just explosion in the last few years. Well, it used to take a <clears throat> band in a large studio, and now it takes a laptop and some talent. Right. right. So there's. <laughs> A lot of incredible music happening all the time. And I do my best to keep up on it, but there's so much that even though I'm in the business and I'm always looking for great music, there's a lot I don't know. <laughs> because right. it's it's so much is happening, which is wonderful. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'm curious to hear more about your life. Like how did you have you been a music lover your whole life? I have. It really started when I was six years old, and I got for my birthday just a tiny little turntable, a record player, we called it uh -huh. back then. And my first album that I got was the soundtrack to Dumbo. Uh. <laughs> and Pink Elephants was something that um, came back later in life as well. Pink Elephants? <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a whole musical journey and a whole life journey. Yeah. Uh, pink elephants maybe representing an altered consciousness state. Oh, interesting. Which, if you watch the movie, that's what happened. I'm going to have to rewatch the movie. I can't remember that well. Well, they ended up, um, Dumbo and Jiminy Cricket ended up uh, drinking some alcohol. Oh. And they had this... Um, altered state experience of seeing these pink elephants. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Those old Disney movies can be so fascinating to watch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you wonder what those cartoonists were doing back in those days. But. Yeah. Especially, what was it, Fantasia? Just like, I saw that when I was so young. I had no idea what was happening. And and it kind of haunted me. And yeah. I rewatched it when I was like four or five, six years old, trying to understand. And then, I recently rewatched parts of it, and it's just beautiful. The mm -hmm. music is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. The, the creativity is is amazing. Um, and then you you said you were a computer programmer. Is that what you? Yeah, well, software development, computer programming has been my primary vocation mm. in life. Um, so I've been a programmer for over forty years. I owned a software company in Boulder oh. for thirty years. Oh, cool. And 
that was really how I um, I just gravitated. It was very natural for me. I taught myself computer programming, yeah. and I was successful doing it. And I decided after working in different software companies and uh, I felt I was compromised because salespeople would make promises that were not really deliverable in at yeah. least the time frame they were promised. So I started my own company, and my idea was that I would be a technical person running a technical company. And honest. I was also the salesman. Okay. <laughs> cool. Because one of the things you said to me in an email, I think, was that you don't you ask for money for your music or for playing, generally speaking. is. I, I do not. I mean, sometimes I get offered money, especially when it's a event where they charge money and if they make a profit and they offer me money, I will accept it. It's not, I don't have an overabundance of money. But I also play for free often. I do a lot of benefits. And I've been on KGNU Public Radio for decades now, and that's a volunteer position. Mm. So I, I've done more playing music without getting paid than I have been getting paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so obviously money is not the motivating factor for you. It's not. And having software as a way to, you know, make a, enough money is I'm also a music collector, so I have a vast music collection. And I'm mm. old school. I still purchase music. Like uh, records? Vinyl. C- CDs? Vinyl and okay. CDs okay. are my primary. I have... I, nobody's been able to count how many CDs I have, but it's in the 20,000 <laughs> 20, range. Oh, and, wow. Where do uh, you put them all? I have a music studio on Lee Hill Road. Oh, okay. And uh, it's wall-to-wall, and there's still about 20% in boxes that I don't have room for. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. And I have not as much vinyl, but I have several thousand records as well. Mm. Cool. Yeah. I guess the, another thing I was going to ask you about is how you first came to Colorado. Well, I was a student and a football player. Oh, yeah. I played high school and college football. Yeah. And I played college football at a small college in Pennsylvania, Dickinson College. Hmm. We were the Dickinson College Red Devils. And interestingly enough, I played... In high school, we were the Tom Zerber Indians, so not exactly politically correct, but right. that's what it was. Yeah. Did they have they changed the name now? I don't believe they have. Okay. I don't believe they have. In any case, after um, being in Dickinson College, and I was sort of interested in studying psychology. Mm. I was interested in the the mind. Mm. Um, ended up doing a lot of LSD at some point. And so what, I, what year, what time frame are we in? We're about in 1972. Okay. And I was starting fullback on the football team. <laughs> and I actually had an experience where I did acid before a football practice. I don't think uh, oh, many well. people have had that experience. <laughs> and it was pretty interesting Sounds practice. anxiety-inducing. How, how was that? It went okay. It went okay. Yeah. I, I had a perspective, and I actually enjoyed it. And there were, you know, football practice isn't necessarily a lot of fun. You know, you know, you're like have to endure a lot of difficulties in practice. But right. 
Um, I rather enjoyed that practice, and there were <laughs> things about it that made me laugh. And then just the fact that I was doing LSD, playing uh, football. That's an amazing story. <laughs> yeah. No one else had any idea. No, and I never. I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> Not even any of the guys, because I didn't want it being spread around. Okay. <laughs> There's a famous story of a baseball player who, yeah, who took LSD and then threw no hitter. No, a perfect game. A perfect game. And a perfect game means no hits, just uh, 27 batters up and 27 batters down. And they're very rare, even as many. There's thousands of baseball games every year because each team plays 162, I believe, plus the playoffs. And often it might be two, three, four years in between a perfect game. So it's. Oh, I didn't realize it was that rare. That's amazing. A no hitter is not as rare. Oh, the perfect game. Because they, they might, a no hitter could involve walks yeah. or um, errors where people get on base. But mm. a perfect game is just what it says. And that is actually pretty rare. So, no, it's true that he was in a state of mind to where he was able to control the ball to s- such a degree. Right. That he pitched a perfect game and later admitted that he was on LSD at the time. <laughs> so that's, I didn't that's have amazing. I wonder. I mean, I think one of the things about something like that it's kind of unpredictable. I don't know if you could repeat that. You know, I don't know if he took LSD before every game if you would have that result. But that's an amazing story. Probably not. But I've also heard that there were a few Medal of Honor winners <clears throat> in Vietnam who took LSD. And they won the Congressional Medal of Honor by saving a lot of people. And they were apparently able to literally dodge the bullets because they could see them coming. So because LSD, it puts you in a different mind space where we um, sort of gloss over the world with our preconceptions. And LSD is one of the substances that can break those preconceptions down and you experience the vivid reality. Mm. So by experiencing that directly, it's been shown that a perfect game in baseball can be pitched and people are willing to go in front of bullets and Mm. dodge them and pull people out of a dangerous situation so that they don't get Mm. uh, further injured. So apparently um, there's a number of stories like this. Yeah, that's amazing. I haven't heard that about Vietnam War. Yeah. Well, it's becoming more and more common. I think microdosing now these days is becoming more common where people take like a tenth of a dose or even less. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD somewhat accidentally, right. lived till I think about 104 years old. And apparently the last several years of his life, he microdosed every other day. Oh, I didn't know that. And I believe it had a lot to do with his longevity there's uh, photographs I've seen of him where he's with some of the trance producers, the musical trance yeah. producers, um, who had parties with him on his like 100th and 100th first birthday and things like that. And oh, wow. he didn't, the fact that he was 100 years old was hard to fathom because <laughs> he had so much life in him. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, he was a, he's an inspiring figure, actually. Yeah. So, you know, back to Pink Elephant. <laughs> back to Pink Elephant. Um, I was very influenced by psychedelic drugs. Mm. But earlier in life, 
I was influenced by just questioning reality. And I grew up in a family that was, I think, very strict by today's standards of the Mm -hmm. way people bring up children. It was a quote-unquote Republican family. (laughs) Right. Um, Children were to be seen, not heard. Mm -hmm. And I had experiences where... And my my older brother, I had an older brother who was uh, extroverted, and I grew up being very introverted. And we were, I was not encouraged to express myself. And I had this experience where I was just looking out the window one day, and I just started to think, why was there ever anything? Why did there have to be anything? Why do I have to be here? Why? What if there was nothing? And I got into a state of mind where I experienced what it would be like if there never was anything. Mm. And everything disappeared. And I went downstairs, and there was a family dinner situation, and, you know, the tables had to be set certain ways, and... um, (laughs) You know, we were supposed to sit certain ways and we were supposed to eat with a knife and fork in certain ways and so on. Like I said, it was very regimented. And I asked my parents, my brother and sister, my parents were there, and I asked the question. And I was about maybe nine or ten years old. Mm. I said, why did there have to be anything? Why is there anything? And I got back, God, you don't want to think about that. That's just a waste of time. And I was just completely shut down. And mm. they didn't ask me, well, why would you ask a question like that? Which is like what, a, what I think I would do. Yeah, like a total lack of curiosity or questioning. It was just that it wasn't in their frame of reference. Mm. So I had other thoughts and experiences like that Um questioned we were brought to sunday school and i questioned the bible and i was told not to question it for Mm. example and i said well how do we know that there is a god Mm. and i was told that now god doesn't want you to think about that and then i was like well wait a second if there isn't a god then there's nobody who doesn't want me to not think about it (laughs) and if there is a god who's so great and powerful that he created all of this he probably has a big enough mind to allow me to have such thoughts. Right. So either way, I at an earlier age, before, way before uh, I did any LSD, I didn't buy into the conventional reality. Right. You were questioning things and asking big questions. And you were like, would you say you were like 11, 12 years old? 10, 11, 12 so, years old, I started to have those questions. Yeah. And I didn't get any answers. Right. From Sunday school, school, or my parents. And this would this be in the 60s? It would be. Yeah. I was born in 1952. Okay. Yeah, it's such a, that's such an amazing time period in American history where there was, I think, this very conventional way of life and then this like radical counterculture that emerged. And it's been so influential. I mean, I think some of the same dynamics you're talking about now are still happening in people's lives. But I think at the same time, these kinds of questioning, this kind of openness is becoming more common. You know, it's more. Certainly. Maybe but, it depends on your family and where you live, but. Well, there was a lot of, I would say, paving the way of 
yeah, you know, yeah. what I would call the hippie generation <laughs> right. and the music at that time. So I grew up loving music, and uh, my father was the managing editor of the Asbury Park Press. And one of the Bennies, he got benefits he got from the job was he got uh, front row tickets to a lot of the shows at Convention Hall. And so I ended up seeing The Doors, Led Zeppelin, Iron Butterfly, and all kinds of rock groups. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, with very good seats. And I was very influenced by that music. Mm. And that's when I went to college. You know, I was um, a straight-A student in high school. I was a football star. I got accepted to a good college, Dickinson College. I got accepted to other colleges, but I decided Mm -hmm. to go there. It was close and uh, a good school. And I started, I was a starting fullback my freshman and sophomore years. Mm. And I listened to a lot of that music and then... I started to do LSD, and it sort of came back to those experiences of experiencing what nothingness is or experiencing the potential mm. of nothingness that I just saw through all the conventional reality, the hypocrisy that exists on the political level, for example, mm. on what I consider the religious level of people saying certain things but not really living what they were saying. Right. And I decided to drop out. So there were, mm. this gets back to how <laughs> I got to Colorado is I left college after two years mm. and I hitchhiked around the country, um, spent a lot of time on the West Coast, hitchhiked up and down the West Coast, lived in Oregon, Washington. I lived in communes. I was um, what today you call homeless, but back Mm. then it was a lifestyle and didn't consider it anything negative. I considered it a freedom where Mm. I could just hitchhike to somewhere, find a nature spot and camp in the woods for a couple of weeks. (laughs) And I lived like that and I made money. I worked on farms, Mm. in orchards, things like that. And I learned, you know, how to make enough money to get by. And I did that for several years, and I hitchhiked through Boulder, Colorado Mm. in, I think, sort of 92, 93. Um, And my girlfriend was actually the one who was hitchhiking. I I hitchhiked with uh, Kathy, a girlfriend of mine, for a while, Mm. and she had her thumb out. And the police actually stopped and arrested her. Oh, no. And it was in, um, I think it was in Longmont. So we ended up spending a, a weekend in Boulder. <laughs> what, getting, did they, what did they arrest her for? Hitchhiking. It was illegal oh. at the time. Jeez. And I got introduced to Boulder. I saw what it was. And it was a hippie town in Boulder huh. in like 72, 73 when I was there. Oh, cool. And... Then later that year, and I think it was the fall of 1973, um, she broke up with me, and I was very yeah. brokenhearted, mm. completely brokenhearted. She was my high school girlfriend, and we, mm. she hitchhiked with me when I left college, and mm. I was devastated, and I meditated in this 
friend's house for about two weeks. was very sad. And then um, I started meditating. Mm. And I did <laughs> a significant dose of LSD. And I was just meditating in this house in Portland, Oregon. And just like the black light posters, I had this vision, this sort of black light vision. And the word Boston was illuminated, like this black light poster sign. <laughs> Boston. Boston. And so huh. I took that as a sign from the universe. So the next day I hitchhiked to Boston. It took me three days. Jeez. And as I got closer, people said, oh, you're... You know, hippie lifestyle, you should go to Harvard Square, and that's where you're going to meet other hippies and stuff like that. <laughs> so I hitchhiked to Boston, and I, I met this other traveler like me, and we hung out. And on the there was a poster hmm. on the um, um, just on different stores. It was Dharma Arts Festival, and the yeah. very next weekend. There was a Dharma Arts Festival, and Ram Das, who I'd been reading Be Here Now when I oh, did yeah. LSD, uh, Bhagwan Das, Allen Ginsberg, who I oh. had studied his poetry, and Chogum Chungpa Rinpoche all had these different events in the Dharma Festival. This is one week oh, cool. after I got to Boston. That's perfect timing. Yeah. So I was going to ask you how you met Chogum Chungpa Rinpoche, and it's cool to hear you also met Ram Das and Bhagavan Das. Exactly. Yeah. And so I went to all of these events, and there was uh, chanting. Um, I remember Allen Ginsberg had this harmonium, and he did this singing, and um, there were a lot of different things that happened. And then the very last event was at Harvard, and it was a lecture by Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche. And I didn't know anything about him, even though I had read by then some of Evans Wentz's books, which were like oh, the yeah. early translation translations of Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation and Tibetan Book of the Dead. Right. It was one of the first kind of translations, which apparently is not a very good translation in terms of the accuracy, but it's an interesting book. Yeah, exactly. But I had read those books. Yeah. And, and then... So I went to this lecture of this Tibetan teacher on the Sunday night. I had never seen a Tibetan teacher or like a genuine Buddhist teacher mm. up to that point. Though I was interested in doing LSD, I should just sort of back up a little bit that I had experiences where I, sometimes I did a lot. <laughs> and I saw with clarity that achieving an enlightened state of mind was something that we could do as human beings. And so I aspired to attain enlightenment. And That's reading beautiful. those books was sort of interesting. And anyway, so... so the, the experience of taking LSD gave you that sense that this is possible. There's something here. There's something worth pursuing. A lot well, of people have, have some version of that story. Yeah. That leads to a path of meditation. And well, I saw my mind was completely open. It was fluid. I had, you know, this whole visual... Uh, bodily psychedelic experience. Mm. Uh, you know, I once did 20 hits of pure LSD, and that. Jeez. I mean, one That's thing I lot. <laughs> tell people: the cannabis is a lot better these days, but the LSD was a lot better those days. Uh, it, really, it was, better quality. Well, it was very strong. Well, can I? Let me ask you a question about that. Is someone was telling me the other day there's like a ceiling with LSD? Like, if you take beyond 
three or four, I don't know what it would be exactly, but it doesn't really change that much. Like taking 20 versus taking five doses. Is that, I don't know if that's true. I described it as, I took 20, the finger of God entered through me. I was in this completely Mm. multidimensional space of seeing Krishnas and Buddhas, and it was very joyous ecstatic and you know mind expanding Mm. it was very visual and i had those experiences but then the experience would be over and the next day i started to get a little depressed Mm. because i couldn't remain in that state of higher consciousness Mm. and that's where i really started to look at um you know I, i did read be here now i read the bhagavad gita I read the Evan Swenson's books. I even read the Bible, you know, just oh. trying to see how I could stay in that state of mind right. always rather than only when on an LSD trip. So when I attended that lecture with Chogyam Trungpa, he was talking about how, um, you know, you needed to find a discipline and stay with it rather than be a spiritual shopper. Mm. And... All of a sudden, it was almost as if the spotlight was turned on me. He said, so you've been traveling around the country doing LSD, trying a little this and that. He said, taking LSD is like driving a car to go next door. (laughs) He said, you should just walk, and then you see all the landscapes. And Uh, I got it. I understood what he was saying. That uh, LSD sort of brought me to that place. But... I didn't have to do LSD. I could actually learn to meditate and I could <laughs> learn that how to be in that space without the drug. That's beautiful. I mean, so it's like he was like speaking directly to you. It felt it, it felt, felt that, that way right. when he said that. And I started meditating on a daily basis after that. So what I learned from him was about just that using our, the power of our mind, we can enter these altered states and become, <laughs> actualize them in our own being. Mm. So I embarked on the Buddhist path, and that was in the fall of 73 by then. Mm. Yeah, and so is that, I was going to ask you what led to the name Buddha Bum. <laughs> that must be. Well, that was much later. Much later. And... Uh, it all started, I was doing this particular practice where I, it was, let's see, we're talking about the early 1990s okay. now, where um, Trungpa Rinpoche had died. Mm. And I had on and off practiced a lot, and also I had went through periods where I didn't practice, and mm. I was drinking alcohol, and I had become a computer programmer. I I was sort of on that path as well. But at some point, I ran into a brick wall, so to speak, and I started practicing on a daily basis again. Mm. And I was doing this particular prostration, this meditation practice, for three hours every night. And I... After practicing downstairs, and then I would go up and work on the software because I was uh, working on software at that time. And I turned on the radio, and it was KGNU, 
And they were playing this music I had never heard before. It was really cool. So I called the radio station. I said, hey, what is that music you're playing? He said, oh, man, that's techno. <laughs> techno what's that and it was like 1991 oh wow and so he gave me this rundown and he threw out some names uh, he said well check out the orb and check out, check out orbital and he threw out a few names so i went to the record store and i started collecting electronic music oh, cool. from that experience and all during the 90s i collected electronic music and i developed a a software application that I marketed all across the United States and internationally. I sold copies in Australia. I was there seven times. And, and I did a lot of traveling. And when I did traveling, I would also collect electronic music. Mm. And I, I didn't even know any other DJs. And I wasn't going to raves yet at that point. Um, and then... I did this trip in 1997 to Australia in 98, went there two years in a row. And then when I came back, I, actually it was in the December of 1998, on um, a Saturday night, I was listening to a show called Electronic Air on KGNU Radio, and they were playing what I now know as a Psytrance, Psychedelic Trance, and I really resonated with it. So I called the station, I talked to the the host of the show, and I told him, hey, I've been traveling around. I collected a lot of electronic music. And he said, well, why don't you bring some of your music down and be my guest the next month? Oh, cool. So I went to KGNU the next month and brought some of the music, and they played some of it, and I talked about how I've been traveling around the world and collecting electronic music. And, you know, from that, and then I bought a case of beer, and, you know, <laughs> we hung out and we partied, and then I became really close friends with those guys. And they taught me some DJing. And then I decided I wanted to be a DJ. And so I went through the radio classes at KGNU, and these guys were teaching me about how to DJ from their perspective. And then I learned. And during that, um, that was uh, early in 99, I was coming up with, I realized I had to come up with a DJ name. Because right. uh, the first DJs I met were E23, huh. Cause, and Matter. So three, and then there were other DJs, and they all had a DJ name. <laughs> so I went to this Buddhist lawn party, and it was early spring of 1999. And I had mentioned to somebody that, oh, I'm you know, been getting into electronic music. I'm learning how to DJ, but I'm, and I'm trying to come up with my DJ name. So it was a lawn party and everybody was drinking margaritas. And, um, um, somebody came up to me and said, Hey man, you want to do a bong hit? And I had had a couple margaritas and I was, ah, sure. What the <laughs> heck? And so we kind of went down in these steps that was a little bit lower than the, uh, <laughs> than the lawn where everybody was sort of in this circle drinking margaritas. And so I did this bong hit, but I maybe did it with too much alacrity. And um, <laughs> I, I I took a deep thing and then I breathed it out and it just filled up this lawn with this, this <laughs> weed smoke. And these people looked and they saw me, they saw this smoke coming out of me. And they had been 
talking, unbeknownst to me, about, hey, you know, Jim's, they call me Jim Jobs, and, you know, he's coming up, he wants to be a DJ, and he's, we have to come up with it, let's figure out his uh, DJ name, they, <laughs> they were playing this game, uh. and this one person looked at and pointed at me and said, I know his DJ name, it's Buddha Bong, B-O-N-G, uh. and so <laughs> I was like, Buddha Bong, okay, and so... I had one of my first shows on KGNU radio the next week. And so I went on the air and I said, yeah, this is Buddha Bong. And, you know, I'm going to play this and that. And, and then when I stopped talking, I put on some music. I got a phone call and this woman answered the phone. I said, KGNU radio. She said, did you say you're Buddha Bomb? That's the most incredible name I've ever heard, Buddha Bomb. And at that point, I just saw all this imagery of what would a Buddha Bomb be. And it was this very psychedelic of this uh, consciousness explosion that would go through the world. And at that moment, I realized, that's my real DJ name. I'm Buddha Bomb. So I said, yes, I am Buddha Bomb. Oh, wow. And then I became, I've been Buddha Bomb ever since. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> I like how you're, it's like you're waiting for the world to tell you something. Like you didn't think about it yourself exactly. You were, it kind of came organically. And it's an interesting name. Someone the other day, I was like, I'm doing a podcast with Buddha Bomb. They're like, I don't get it. Bombs are like war and Buddha's for peace. And But I never thought about it that way. I thought about it like what you described, like an enlightenment bomb that like wakes people up. Or Yeah, exactly. And well, there's also the expression of, you know, that's the bomb. Right. And so there's a chant, who to bomb, Buddha bomb. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I kind of have, in some ways, something of a similar story where I got really into meditation and I was studying Buddhism and then later in life got more into electronic music and saw that potential to take you out of your ordinary discursive thinking to a more embodied experience, a more connective experience, you know, bringing together movement and dance and music and so I think it can be, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think a lot of, I think, it, I feel like it's a growing phenomena, like people discovering spiritual experiences like on the dance floor in that way. Because you're, part of it maybe is just when the sound, the bass like takes over your whole field, your whole sensory field and you're immersed in that. Yeah. Well, one of my catchphrases is music to transform consciousness mm. and music does transform consciousness. And it has a lot of power. And the shamans used a repetitive drum beat mm. to bring people into trance states. And that has gone on for millennium. So that's entrainment where you get your heartbeat, your breathing gets entrained to an external source. In this case, a beat. Mm. Except now we have subwoofers. Right. So the whole notion is that by, by entraining the dance floor, then people go into trance states, and I have many anecdotes of people saying that to me. So I do that with that intention. Wow. And I go through this cultural journey when I play a set of also a chakra journey where I will put in uh, didgeridoos and like sort of start with root chakra and then go up through the chakras intentionally to bring people into these very powerful states yeah. by using the music. And this situation has evolved. I rarely do uh, psychedelic drugs anymore, and I don't need to because I meditate. And then also the music has a lot of power. Like mm -hmm. I have a difficult time 
after I'd play a set, of people come up and introduce themselves, like remembering conventional names and things like that. Right. Because I'm in an altered state. It's that potent. Absolutely. The music has that power. Yeah. And so I see my role as a facilitator mm. to help assist travelers to get to that state. And I approach every set with that's my intention. Hmm, that's beautiful. So you feel like there's, can you speak more about the chakras? Like a different kind of sound would would bring you to that energetic center in your body? Well, sure. Well, the root chakra is very low. Like I find like didgeridoos and hmm. sort of low chanting is something that can just be very grounding hmm. and bring you down and just go up through the chakras where, you know, the heart chakras, there's more melodic mm. sort of heart opening um, sounds. You know, this, well, the solar plexus is where I put it, the, you know, go the root chakra and then the solar plexus is a very bass heavy mm. sounds. And so you can actually feel it in your gut right. is the solar plexus. And then do the heart chakra is very melodic and uplifting and then the throat chakra, I will put in some uh, Tibetan chanting mm. and uh, different types of voice, sometimes female, sometimes male. I will sometimes alternate them in songs. Mm. And um, the third eye chakra, I usually will have, that's where I put in most of the music I play doesn't have lyrics, mm. very rarely. But there might be... Um, you know, just one or two conscious statements, like a Terence McKenna mm. about opening up, opening our mind, and how consciousness is everything. Mind is everything. So I'll do a third eye just to get into that space. And then a crown chakra might be like more like coming down, like indigenous chanting. So it all depends. Like I'm just giving you examples. Yeah. I don't have like <laughs> I you know this has to be that. It's like I just feel it and I look at it as a chaco journey. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. I think different people will have different experiences, but um the intention there is beautiful and like maybe the lack of words is part of what helps people come out of their thinking mind. Well, exactly. And too many lyrics then puts people into a conceptual state. Right. But I also find that some small amount of well-placed proper lyric, you know, or just a voice sample mm. of somebody saying something is also very powerful because then you're open at that state. Right. I've, I've heard that a lot with uh, Alan Watts quotes in... Mm-hmm. Different people's music. Yeah. He was like, did you ever get to meet him? I did not. He, he died a little bit before then. Yeah, he he died at a, a really young age, I think around 57. Oh, well. So that's, so did you um, study with Trunk Rinpoche for a while then? Were you part of the community? And I was, and it wasn't called Shambhala back then. Mm. It was called Vajradhatu. And... The building downtown was called Karmasong. And so I first studied at the, um, in the different cities, they were sort of satellites. It was the, the Boston Dharmadatu. And then Tale of the Tiger was a land center that was in Vermont, later got named as Karme Choling. Hmm. 
So I did retreats there, and I studied in the Boston Dharma Datu. And getting back to that story of I hitchhiked through, because um, you started out, you asked <laughs> yeah. me how I got to Boulder. You know, I hitchhiked through um, when I was a hippie through Boulder, and then I connected with the Dharma in Boston mm. and the Boston Dharma Datu. And then the next summer was the summer of 74. And so I came out to Boulder to attend the Naropa Institute for the first summer of Naropa. Oh, cool. And since I had left college after two years, um, I completed my education at Naropa. So Mm. I graduated in 1978, which was the second graduating class of Naropa. I I didn't know that. I I have a degree in Buddhist psychology and... That was my major, so to speak. And then my I minored in beat poetry because at that time, Allen Ginsberg was here and then many oh, wow. visiting teachers, you know, William Burroughs being probably the most famous one, like Gregory Corso, hmm. Ann Waldman became a resident. And there were, uh, Philip Whalen was a Zen poet. Hmm. I remember two of his poems, Dots and Squiggles Justify the air and space I occupy. Nice. (laughs) And all I bought was all I needed, namely soap. (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) So, you know, I just connected with those poets. So that was a very uh, rich time. And I got to meet and hang out with Allen Ginsberg, and he liked my poems and attended a poetry reading I did. And that was... Oh, that's so cool. Really interesting. Yeah, it was such an amazing time. In uh, it seemed like so wild and free. Like it seems like more. There's more wildness back then, more freedom even. There was, and they actually had dances, and I wasn't, you know, a DJ at that point. Mm-hmm. But there were dances, and there was a lot of jumping around, and it was uh, talk about free form. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you think people were dancing more energetically, maybe in general? Yeah, um, perhaps spastically in some cases, <laughs> but it wasn't as much of a path as I see it now. I see ecstatic dance as a journey path. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I've done some uh, with five rhythms, and that's a really powerful kind of dance path. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are different forms of right. it that have have surfaced and are evolving and it's continuing to evolve yeah such a cool cool thing you, you were telling me before we started recording that the first ecstatic dance was in hawaii but... I, as i understand it it was a sunday morning i believe on the big island cool. and i understand it's still going on and i do know some of my dj friends have played ecstatic dances in hawaii so i know there's a number of them now yeah sure it's amazing and it's come to colorado in, I think it was 2006 was when Gypsy Nation first came to Colorado. I first played in January of 2007, and that came about. I was invited to attend a Gypsy Nation event, which was in um, toward the end of 2006, and. I danced, and it was basically there was a mixed tape that was played. Huh. And 
as I was dancing, I was getting into the music, and then all of a sudden it changed in a way where it sort of brought me down, and I saw the energy change. And so they asked me at the end of the dance, they said, oh, um, Buddha Bomb is here. He's a well-known local DJ, and um, we'd like to know your feedback. You know, I was a guest. Mm. I was on the guest list. Yeah. So I said, well, I really enjoyed dancing with everybody tonight. really appreciate this. This has a lot of potential. I said, but what I see is that it requires a live music, a live DJ, a live band, to because things change based right. on how the energy is. And so they said, well, would you like to try it? So I got signed up for, I'm pretty sure it was in January of 2007 was my first DJ experience. And it... I prepared for it. I still have the mix somewhere. Oh, and wow. then I started DJing every month. Why I DJed the first Tuesday of every month. And then I also scheduled other DJ friends of mine. <laughs> and there were some uh, bands. Tribal Electra was kind of this electric mm. acoustic band with Paul Temple and Ariana Saraha. Mm. And they played there. And then later... Lunar Fire, which came out of... Oh, yeah, I've, I've seen them. They're yeah, the, the Canal, which was this sort of a shaman band that mm-hmm. I was connected with. And it became a live DJ and band experience, the Ecstatic Dance in Boulder. And Gypsy Nation went for several years. And then uh, some things happened, um, and the name got transformed to Rhythm Sanctuary, and then a sister dance of Gypsy Nation in Denver also became Rhythm Sanctuary. So there were two Rhythm Sanctuary dances, one in Boulder and one in Denver. And after about four years, the one in Boulder ended just because some people moved away and also had babies and different life things happened. And so... Uh, Rhythm Sanctuary in Denver continued to thrive, and it's still going, still going. on. Yeah, I was going to say it's still going. It's an amazing event. There's usually about a hundred people there. It's incredible. Um, there's like was that. quite a few more than that. The last more? time I played, oh. I would say in the more closer to four hundred people. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. There's at yeah. least two hundred people go. Yeah. To the dances, and I I don't count them, but it, <laughs> it, the room is. A big the room, room is and very it's packed. Very packed. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. Ava Lene is the primary facilitator. Yeah, she's great. And she does a wonderful job. And there's a DJ rotation. I play there every several months, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes three or four months in between because there's so many different acts. But it's just a wonderful experience. Yeah. Well, I think you made a good point about having a live living person there playing the music, even if they are mostly just pushing play. They're still choosing what song. They're feeling the energy in the room. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit because I think for me and probably for other people, it's a little bit confusing sometimes when you see an artist. You don't always know what's their original music or what they're playing from someone else. And Well, I approach it of I'm spending most of my time is in figuring out what I'm going to do next. And part mm-hmm. of what I, how I decide to do that is feeling what the audience is feeling, what the participants are feeling. And if I'm sensing 
they need to go, um, you know, they need more base. They need more, mm. more solar plexus <laughs> chakra. I will go into a bass riff for several tracks. And, mm. and when I get to the heart chakra, sometimes I feel like we need to stay there or we need to move on. So it's, it's just, I, I can't exactly describe it because I approach the set where I have a body of music and I have a sort of a rough, very rough outline of the set, mm. but it never comes out exactly the way my outline does or how uh -huh. I practice it. Because things change and I have different feelings and I realize, oh, <laughs> I know it's required right now. I know what they want to hear. Mm. And I will change it. The last two sets I did were about 60% what I had prepared and about 40% of improv tracks. Oh, cool. of, And sometimes I will be playing something and it's not working out so well or I'll play something say with a little Middle Eastern rift and I see how much it affects the people and then I might play another track or uh, two along those lines. So you're very attuned, really feeling the crowd, feeling people. That's what I pay attention to. That's, that's where I focus people. I, I, I pay more attention to that than sort of the technical dynamics of DJing where mm. some DJs are, you know, very talented and they are doing all kinds of effects and things. And I do some of that, but I'm more, especially in the ecstatic dance, mm. I'm focused on the dancers. And for me, it's, they form the dance. And some, sometimes people say, well, that was incredible. And I say, yeah, thank you for <laughs> dancing and for being, yeah. you, you help evolve it. So it's, um, it's a real collaboration. It's a real, I feel I would, that often at a concert, like the people there make it up as much as the musicians, you know, it's all. We're all interconnected. Right. And I can never do a set like that in my studio. It's mm. never happened. I actually tried a few times oh, and well. I can't do it. It has to be with live, with dancers. And that's where it becomes, um, where it's interchangeable, where right. I'm getting feedback and I'm getting... I see the joy that they have, and then I realize sometimes just what's needed next. And it's never follows a pattern. It's always fresh, and it's always like I get surprised. I've said, boy, I had no idea mm. I was going to play like four or five of those tracks at least is what, what happens. So for me, it's a very living, dynamic situation to where the... Improv is just as important as the preparation. And I spend a lot of time preparing the tracks. Mm. Yeah. Well, you must, you must spend a lot of time just listening to music too, right? I do. I do. And I would say I sometimes will listen to 100 tracks before there's one that I will play. Oh, wow. Because I'm very selective. And I, mm. you know, my primary formula is I play the music that I love. Mm. And my theory is, if I love it this much, other people are going to love it as well. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's beautiful. Um, and how are you? Are you like constantly looking for new music? Always. Yeah. Always. I'm swimming through oceans of music, <laughs> and I'm always hungry for it, and I'll never have enough. Nice. <laughs> I have twenty thousand CDs. Next, 
Right. <laughs> 10 years from now, I'll have 30,000, you know, and I buy, I still buy music, so I'm old fashioned that way, but I buy the CDs. There's a website, it's called Discogs, Dis, huh. as in discography, discogs.com. And it has the discography of almost every artist that's out there. So it'll have their first albums, their, you know, through their current albums. And then there's a link where you can look up information on any particular album. And then it has sellers all around the world who will be selling that album. So it's not like Amazon where it's one company that's got an inventory. You're mm -hmm. buying it from independent sellers. Nice. So I purchase music from people from Israel, Greece, uh, India, Germany, and so uh, Japan, all over the world. And it's also fun where you get into, there's like an email thread where you say, you know, they will ask you how I, if I want insurance on the shipping or mm. how fast I want it. And so you get into a dialogue with the people. So it's much more uh. human than just purchasing, you know, like the way the online experience, you just click, 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 right. and then it shows up. Like right. it's more interaction so i love discogs and that's where there's you know a lot of stories i have of what i got into conversations and why i chose the music i do so that's i get cool. most of my music from discogs that's cool to hear so most of the music you're getting is the physical cd and not a download yeah and i do it opposite uh some djs buy the music digitally and then they burn right. it burn it onto cd and then they play it off of cdjs which are the uh. professional cd players I do it opposite, where I buy the original CDs, and then I convert it into digital, and then I play it through uh, a laptop with a MIDI controller and software. I use Ableton Live, mostly, okay. for DJing. Cool. So there's a lot of different ways <laughs> to do music these days. There's a lot of technology. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you peeling back the veil a little bit of how it's all made, because it's mysterious. You know, like, you see the DJs up there, and <laughs> you don't know what they're doing always. But. Well, they're... And they're different DJs. Some of them have, you know, original music that they've produced and right, they do what's right. more called live PA where they're playing um, bits and pieces of their music that they're mixing together live in some cases. Yep, yeah. So there's, um, you know, a lot of different ways to do it. And that's the wonderful thing about it. yeah. Well, it's, it's with the amazing growth of our technology and all the artists out there, it's becoming more, I guess there's no one way to do anything anymore. I mean, there's just so many ways that you can go about it. And, yeah. Well, and interestingly enough, the acoustic bands use the same software. They use, it's called um, DAWs, Dig right. Digital Audio Workstations. Mm -hmm. So Ableton Live, Logic, Pro Tools, those are some of the more well-known ones. Um, Fruity Loops is another one. But there's different ones that uh, different producers will use, and sometimes they'll use more than one because they get maybe certain sounds or certain beats from one, but then they want to master it. You know, Pro Tools and Logic have very powerful sound engines. Mm. But acoustic bands use the same software where they will have, um, you know, electronic music, you have different, different clips, different tracks mm -hmm. that you mix together on different channels. You know, it's called sequencing. Mm -hmm. and, and acoustic songs these days use the same software. So to some degree, all recorded music today is electronic music. 
even if it's right. the sounds are acoustically based. No, that's a good point. Yeah, it's all coming together in the. I, I've been um, making some music on Ableton and trying to bring in live improv guitar with it, and it's fun to fun to play with that. And the interplay between the more automatic or kind of machine elements and the more human, you know, live instrumentation is it's an interesting place to be in. It is, and electronic music has evolved. And people used to say uh, there were a lot of people who resisted electronic music and say it's all canned. Well, there's a lot of heart in it and there's a lot of effort and there's a lot of intention and there's a lot of beauty and you can do, make all sorts of incredible sounds because yeah. you have uh, filtering and, and different methodologies to alter the sound and the nuance of a beat can actually sometimes producers will spend days on just you know one a kick drum for example and just right. getting the kick exactly <laughs> right so there's a, a lot of effort that goes into it it's not just pressing buttons oh absolutely yeah it's interesting for me to think about i used to think that way too like kind of like machines or robots on one side and like humans or like life on the other side and i just see it now more and more coming together and like even my own like heartbeat, like I don't control that. I mean, in some sense, we are kind of biological machines, at least to some degree. And then, <laughs> and then these machines that we're creating are speaking with us, and infl- it's all interconnected. It all kind of it is interconnected. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if a human builds a computer, we can't really say the computer isn't is totally separate from us. It's all created by mind. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Everything is created by mind, mm. and especially music. <laughs> and but. Music is on a dimension that's not exactly the physical plane. You know, Mm. it's interesting with sound waves, you can see the sound, but you can't touch it in the same way you can touch a table and a chair. Right. It's something that goes through you, and that's something where I realized the power that it has to alter consciousness because Mm. it brings us into other dimensions. Yeah. And I think it helps us to feel connected, like we've been talking about. Like if you're with a group of people all listening to the same music, there's there's this possibility of feeling really connected. Well, it is. And it gets back to that entrainment I was talking about where everyone gets entrained, where their body gets synchronized to the beat, the breathing, the movement, and that there is the ability for people to feel more connected with each other on the dance floor. And it happens organically that way because we're all getting entrained to the same rhythm patterns and the same beats and it's Mm. very powerful and i've seen it you know at the ecstatic dances especially where people are there for a dance journey and the ecstatic dances are usually just several hours long and there's not a lot of coming and going it's not like you know when you know, playing at a bar or something like that. People right. go outside and they smoke or they do this and that. It's the ecstatic dance. Everybody's there for experience. It's there, you know, happening at a finite amount of time. And most of the people are there on the dance floor for the entire experience. And yep. I find it, as well as other DJs who I've talked to, find it to be a much more satisfying experience than many other DJ experiences because you're able to bring them on a journey where everybody hears your whole set. Right. Absolutely. It makes so much sense to me. And the, another piece of it is often you're not supposed to talk on the dance floor. 
add an ecstatic dance. That's a you know a ones. rule or a guideline or <laughs> a law depending on <laughs> how it wants to be expressed. But it, the idea is that you you want to get out of your normal conceptual mind mm. of just chatter or gossip or just talking idly, and you want to have a deeper experience. And sometimes people might be in a dark place or they might be sad, they lost mm. their job, they um, relationship fell apart, mm. they are having difficulty. And it's, it's a movement meditation that has a lot of power where you can gain perspective on mm. your life and you can maybe see through sort of the duality that you're creating. In, on the dance floor. So I see it as being um, a very positive experience. And for many people, you know, even going back to the days of raves, where the dance floor was the closest thing to a spiritual, you know, or religious experience that they had, mm. where people have rejected conventional churches and so right. on. And... <laughs> Um, they found something amazing, something blissful, something different. The days of rave affected a lot of people in a way to where they realized their own humanity through the dance. So even mm -hmm. the, I mean, I see it as a evolution because there were substances involved in many of the dance experiences like disco, for example, there was a lot of alcohol and a lot of cocaine. Mm. On the rave, it's known that ecstasy was a primary yeah. drug of choice. Um, the psychedelic trance festivals, which started in Goa, India, mm. and then um, morphed all around the world starting in the early 90s, started with the VU Festival in Germany and um, very big in Israel and you know many countries around the world. LSD and mushrooms and DMT were the drugs of choice. And it's evolved to now where there's sound healings, yoga classes, ecstatic dances, where the music is the drug. Mm. And the music itself has the power to put people into the altered states. So I see it as electronic music has evolved to where mm. we don't need to rely on substances. That just being together, dancing together on the dance floor is the drug, so to speak. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's a great message. I think, um, I think it's true. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think a lot of the indigenous cultures that they would use drumming and whatnot, like what you were speaking of with shamans to alter consciousness, they didn't need to use a lot of substances all the time. No, they didn't. And there were times when they did certainly right. peyote ceremonies and there, there were substances that were used in different cultures, but, also, in the African dance, it was the drumbeat. Mm. That's the, it is the heartbeat. It represents the heartbeat. It re represents our humanity. And that is kind of the ground of our being that we experience, you know, that we can experience mm. the reality through. And, you know, there, there's a time and a place, you know, people that take those ayahuasca journeys and so on. And mm. I you know I believe there's a time and a place for people. And I follow maybe the Terrence McKenna line of thought that it's up to us 
to decide on our own consciousness journeys. Mm-hmm. So we should but have the, that freedom to choose. We we have that freedom to choose. It's not you know widely ex, uh, accepted in the culture, but there's maybe a little bit more openness and return to it. Where you know, just to use an example, it's there's been a number of people I know Stanislav Groth and other people who have used the psychedelic experience to assist people with terminal illnesses to have a different perspective and to be able to get to that place of acceptance much sooner. And psilocybin mushrooms are, it's now legal for certain doctors to prescribe that to people who have terminal illnesses to facilitate a journey so that they can get a perspective and in some cases overcome their fear of death example mm, that's amazing yeah i think we are making progress as a society and i think in the next from what i've heard in the next three to five years there'll be there will like mdma is on its way to be in a prescription medication for therapists and certainly to get rid of um you know addictions alcohol cigarette addiction right. uh, cocaine addiction can be facilitated through things like mda MDMA experience to where people get a perspective on their life and realize that they don't need to live as a slave to their habituals, patterns like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I think some people are like for myself, like going to ecstatic dance can be like you were talking about a way of um, gaining those experiences maybe without the use of substances all the time. It can, I don't know, I think it could be a good bridge for people, a way to integrate, a way to have a, a grounded, connected experience. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so are you still meditating? Is that still part of your life? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. And it's a way to connect with myself, to see what's really important. I've had different teachers. I did study with uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. I also studied with Khandro Rinpoche uh, pretty oh, yeah. intensely for many years. And she made a strong point about our actions, about, she said, examine every action that we take and how we take it. Like, look at how you walk down the street, how you introduce yourself to people, how you move and that everything you do affects everything else. And I think that that, that mm-hmm. gets back to the interconnectivity and the you know ethics and the um, awareness that you can bring to every situation does affect everyone else. And so I take that teaching to heart. Yeah. That is beautiful. That's a good message. Maybe easier to say than to do. <laughs> but yeah, it just makes me think about like I am making a point to try to leave earlier for appointments and meetings and things. So I'm not rushing because then when I'm rushing, I'm I'm putting out this kind of energy in the world or cutting someone. You know, I don't want to be cutting someone off in traffic, for example. Right. Yeah, kind of hurry thing. up. Hurry up to meditate. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't want to hurry. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, bringing it into our our lives, our lived experiences. 
Yeah, so, you know, the the teaching, the way I understood it from her was to really look, examine every moment, every situation we're in, and to really look at it of how to be and how to act and how to talk and to really look at it in a critical way. Mm. And, you know, I'm certainly far from being a saint or anything like that, but I do remember that teaching at all times. Mm. And it's extremely important to, you know, it's not that meditation, you're just disassociated and having all these psychedelic experiences and then you can go and do harm to people. That doesn't really quite work. It's putting it all together to where the concern is for others, how to help others at all times. Yeah. Beautiful. I guess uh, one question that I have while I have you here, it's been a a theme or a topic that's come up a lot on this podcast has been around gurus and teachers and there's, there's been so many scandals do you have any, any thoughts on, on that, on having a spiritual teacher, or has that been a big part of your journey? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious to the recording there, is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's the current. I see. Okay. Um, okay, well, it's true. There are, there are a number of scandals, and, um, you know, I don't know the exact details of most of them, However, what I do know is that karma is something that's very real, but it's nothing that can be exactly defined and that we're all in a situation where everything we do affects everything else, especially ourselves. Mm. And that what the point seems to be is to live ethically and live with awareness. And that meditation teaches us to be present, to be aware, and to look at each situation critically. And I don't really want to comment on specific situations, but I believe that some of the teachers, even though that they've been taught these things <laughs> have maybe just fallen into um, mistakes of not considering others as mm-hmm. much as they should. Uh, one of the teachers that inspired me the most in history is Longchenpa. And mm-hmm. he was um, an incredible intellect and uh, an enlightened person. And he used to travel from town to town and the poor people would make offerings and they didn't have much to offer, but he would just show everybody such kindness mm. wherever he went. So that is inspiring to me that we actually can be kind to everyone, that we can do what we can to help people rather than looking at it of what we can do to take from people. Mm. So I... I'm doing my best to live my life like that. And when I talk to people who are depressed and I find out what it is, I tell them 
to not worry about themselves so much, but to worry about other people, and then mm. it changes their perspective. Mm. Yeah, that's a great message. If we put our awareness, our care on others, we can kind of get out of our own shit a little bit more. And... Yeah, and I don't believe that anybody has the right to abuse or do harm to other people. Now, that being said, there's you know famous stories of teachers you know slapping a student you know and then right. them them achieving enlightenment at that moment. So I'm not being judgmental about that, but I would say that <laughs> um, you know I'm against any kind of abuse towards any person to or animals or the environment. Right. And I yeah. don't really see a lot of good happening out of what I would consider abuse. And yeah, definitely not. And like I said, I I'm wasn't there for um these situations that these scandals are about. So right. I don't really know. And I'm also against anybody covering up for any abuse that they've mm. seen. And we saw in the conventional world at Penn State where there was, you know, this one person who was a pedophile who right, abused the these boys. Football coach or something, yeah. Yeah, he was a, one of the assistant football coaches. And then, um, you know, he's in jail, prison for the rest of his life mm. for doing that. But Joe Paterno, who was the head football coach, his crime was not reporting. Mm. And he had heard these things and, you know, really... The police needed to be called. So sweeping things under the rug and not reporting it is also not good. Not good and shouldn't be tolerated. And I would say that about some of these scandals, that that's a lot of why there's anger because the feeling that the organizations um, right. refuse to acknowledge some of the abuses that happen. So I'm against all abuse and I'm against the covering up of all abuse. Yeah. Absolutely. I know I'm with you 100% on that. I think you made a good point. Like there are these, all these stories of a master doing something that seems abusive, but then the person wakes up, like, especially in the Zen tradition, they'll like chop off an arm or something and the person becomes enlightened. But uh, generally speaking, those seem to be, I, I haven't met anyone in real life who has an example of something quite like that. So I don't, I don't know if I'm recommending it. Yeah. Well, you have to be there, I guess. I guess you have to be there. Yeah. <laughs> But well, there's a famous story of Talopa, and I think he slapped uh, Naropa in the right. face with a fish. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a sandal. Well, there was that. Okay, that was a final thing. But yeah, oh, a fish. But a sandal. Yeah, it, I think that 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 was true. That was maybe the final breakthrough, and having him endure hardships and things like that. Well, we live in a different culture, and yeah, it's important that we treat our children properly right. and that we treat each other properly. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Okay, thank you, Julian It's been Rose. great to have you. Well, thank, thanks for doing the podcast. It's important that we get stories and different perspectives yeah. out there. And I appreciate your role of just finding out what people want to talk about. Yeah, well, I found that when we can talk with someone for a longer time, like the podcast can do, then it, something like really magical can happen. Often the last half of the conversation is like the best part. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I enjoyed it.
Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the show, even one or two dollars makes a big difference. Visit patreon.com backslash a state of mind. For show notes and more information, visit a state of And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit my personal site, julianocean.us. Signing out for now, and wishing all of you a wonderful day. Oh,